Eight years ago, three nerds created a little independent wrestling podcast that could, but over time, that podcast has grown into not just covering wrestling, but all things under the nerd rainbow. From Marvel to the Muppets, from Frank Sinatra to Count Chocula, from Mickey Mouse to CM Punk. Now, here is some combination of Chad, Zach, and Luna as we welcome you to the IndieCast. All nerd, all the time, exclusively on the WNR. Greetings, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the IndieCast. I am your host, Zach Romero. Joining me here is our uh, official fourth member of the show in this current era, one Daniel Starling. Dan, say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. Uh, We're going to be doing an After Dark episode here, coming off the heels of the enormous Megapod recorded live at Brawl USA, where we crowned our first ever uh, WNRNAF champion. And uh, Daniel and I have some thoughts. We're going to discuss a few different topics here. But first thing I'm going to start with is a derailment. Uh, so the day of recording this, we got our first official trailer for Mortal Kombat 1, which is a complete reboot of the series that is coming out September of this year. And so I watched the trailer. I don't know if you've watched it yet. I haven't yet, Okay, no. but what are your thoughts coming off? I know that you're a fighting games guy uh, as a hobby I know that you've got a soft spot for Mortal Kombat. How are you feeling coming off of the last game into this full series reboot? So I'm going to be a thousand percent honest with you. If there's ever a chance for couch co-op, couch, you know, you get the guy sitting in the living room, guys or gals. Thank you. Non-binary. Thank you. Any of the pronoun options. Thank you. Sitting in the living room, playing Mortal Kombat, just shit talking each other, just Mm -hmm. going back and forth. The game could be dog shit and I'm still going to buy it. Excellent, okay. But with how good the last one was, the last couple... Yes, I would say the last couple. And the Injustice series, I'm very much looking forward to this. Excellent. Um, I Looking at the trailer, it's an interesting combination, spelled with a K, um, of they're going... They're, they're truly going back and, and starting from, from scratch, essentially, because they're basically saying the last one kind of reset the timeline. But it's, what if we made Mortal Kombat 1... But not in the 90s, meaning like now video games are very deep and there's like a lot of lore and a lot of world building, not just like, hey, we've got 10 people, we're going to green screen in different costumes and just make a game out of that. Um, you know, and so it looks really interesting. Okay. And I, I was I was kind of taken aback at like how deep it looked like it was trying to tell a story. And then at the end, it's just a quick montage of just like absolutely disgusting fatalities. Like somebody's got somebody and sticks both thumbs in the eye sockets and then just like cracks their head like a melon. Like oh. it's just disgusting. Oh. <laughs> I was like, Holy shit. Okay. So I can't wait. It's looking pretty exciting between that and street fighter six. I think, uh, I think this should be very, very fun. Um, and very exciting. Oh yeah. No, we're ruining the friendship here, pal. Good. That's <laughs> the goal. Um, now speaking of friendships, uh, we've actually gone on a little bit of a friendship building odyssey here. Uh, Daniel and I have been making our way through the various horror films made from the production company Hammer in Britain. Uh, Hammer Horror was a big name in European horror films in like the late 50s throughout, I would say probably 
between the I'd say probably the late seventies, like yeah. that era, they really thrived and made a lot of money and a lot of movies. And so uh, we just got started on this project uh, probably in the last month. Maybe not even that. Maybe like just a few weeks, maybe. Yeah, like the last two weeks or two so. Two weeks or so. Yeah. And we've already made it through seven films uh, in the series. And so just to kind of bring people a little bit of context. So you, you've got your classic Universal Monster movies, uh, Dracula, Frankenstein, and uh, etc. In like the 30s to 40s. And then Hammer, this company that was, I guess, more kind of making its name in science fiction films, decides like. to go horror to make some more money, and so uh, starting in 1957, they released Curse of Frankenstein, uh, starring oh. Peter Cushing as Dr. Frankenstein and Christopher Lee as the monster. Um, now, this wasn't the first one we watched, but I'm just going to go through them in chronological order. Um, we watched them all out of order. Uh, we grabbed a couple of uh, DVD and Blu-ray packs of some of these uh, restored films, uh, thanks to Viper Video in Tampa. Put uh, the plug. Yeah, shout out for the plug there. And so we kind of been jumping all over the place, but in chronological order here. So we start, so we start here with Curse of Frankenstein 1957. So one thing we've gathered from this seven series of films is that you have a giant crush on Peter Cushing. He's the man. There's... I don't know what it is. It's the, the high cheekbones. He does the, have very good cheekbones. And the piercing blue eyes and... Whoever's doing wardrobe at Hammer, they're they were killing it. They've most likely passed away, but they yes. need to keep doing what they're doing. Yeah, they were they were killing it. And Peter Cushing, whether he is the antagonist or protagonist or whatever role he's given, right, is just chewing up the scenery. Yeah, he's just yeah. making the most. Uh, he has like an authoritative presence. Like yes. he always, it's always he's the smartest man because he used to play Sherlock. He was Sherlock Holmes for Hammer before. You know, playing these other parts, um, and he still kind of carries that same sort of gusto um, and long-windedness. Yes. But for anybody who's not familiar, Peter Cushing, uh, I would say his other most famous role is probably Grand Moff Tarkin from the original Star Wars movies. He's sort of Darth Vader's right-hand man, uh, and that—that so that was cool. where he got like the big recognition. But he's killing it in a lot of these Hammer films. Um, so Curse of Frankenstein is interesting because it departs from. You know, your, your main uh, film that you would relate to would be 1931 Universal Frankenstein yes. with Boris Karloff. Um, because that was really the, that's, you know, the one-to-one comparison between the two. It's only, a, you know, what? Uh, 20 so years. Yeah, about a 20, almost a 20-year difference. Um, what I found interesting is that in this one, it is so heavy on Dr. Frankenstein and the creature really doesn't show up until close to the end and doesn't really run amok. Not not really. But I think at the time, that was the better way to make the film. Because if your special effects budget isn't great, yeah. and if you don't have the makeup design to make it spectacular like your Boris Karloff Frankenstein, you keep the monster out of the movie as much as possible. So it's not overwhelmingly wow that's that's a okay at best monster design do you think that the monster design for christopher lee would have worked better if the film was in black and white like karloff's was i think that would lend to you know it would just make it a little bit easier we've got a gomez appearance right but 
Karloff's Frankenstein is just so iconic. Right. And there's... So it would have been hard to top yeah. in any way. But especially it's, you know, a 16-year difference. And there isn't a lot of that in The Curse of Frankenstein. You know, Christopher Lee's Frankenstein isn't as... He looks more like a like a zombie than he does. He does actually kind of look like a zombie. Um, they they did an effect. Definitely wasn't sixteen years, by the way. I just did the math. It's definitely not sixteen years. Um, thank you for not correcting me. Um, We're just they do a thing where like he's got like a dead eye. Like there's one eye that's milky, and the other one's clear, um, which I think is an interesting choice because it does really cement the like he's just made out of parts. Yeah, but it does make him look a lot more like a zombie. Um, but yeah, it was interesting. It was an interesting. Um, it was an interesting film. Like again, a lot of sort of the moral questions because Bride of Frankenstein and Universal gets more into that. Yes, about the like, what are the moral implications of doing this other than just you know, Colin Clive saying it's alive and I feel like God. But you know, Bride of Frankenstein really gets into that. This one I think started with that because they from the beginning the like. Uh, I can't remember his assistant. Frank, uh, Paul? Was it Paul's name? I, I, I but, believe so. Yeah, his, I don't remember the his, actor's his name. His teacher who becomes his assistant is really from the jump like, this is a bad idea. You know, this is no good. And so we really have a big back and forth between that. Um, also, uh, Peter Cushing's Frankenstein is kind of a bastard. Like... Like in Absolutely. terms of in terms of the monster, he's more of an opportunist. But in terms of personality wise, he is kind of a bastard, because at one point it's revealed that he's having an affair with his like housekeeper, even though he's set to be married to Elizabeth, and the housekeeper's like, "Oh, I thought we were gonna get married." And he's like, "Yeah, that's not me," and she's like, "Yeah, but I'm definitely pregnant, dog." And he's like, "Oh, we'll just go to town and say that it's someone else's because they'll believe it." And I was like, "Jesus Christ, Peter oh. Cushing!" And, like, and just he, a bastard. He says it with such an air of confidence. Yeah, like, no, it'll work. Yeah, Which, like, in his defense, it's like the 1800s. Medical science is not great. Like, he has a point, but also, what a bastard. Such a burn. Um, and then, yeah, the, the, the film wraps with him being sentenced to death. Like, the cops come in, and the monster's dead, and, and he gets put away, and he's going to get guillotined. Because they don't believe that there is a monster. Because, right. Because he didn't run amok. So it uh, it looks like Dr. Frankenstein. He's just a nutcase. And is committing murders. Right. Which I thought was an interesting way to put that. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting bow, which isn't usually in the Hammer horror films. Right, that's true. We're going to talk about that in a second. But a lot of these horror films wrap up so quickly. So aggressively. It's almost like a wrestling match. Well, um, the next, got to go home. The next film in the in the chronological order here is Horror of Dracula, 1958. So literally a year later, they reverse the roles. Yes. So in Curse of Frankenstein, Peter Cushing is Dr. Frankenstein. Christopher Lee is the monster. In this one, Peter Cushing is Van Helsing. Christopher Lee is the monster. Yes. But he's the good guy in this one, and, and then Dracula's obviously Dracula. And you'll notice watching through the Hammer Horror films, the cast is very much repeated. Yes. We have a clear roster. Yes. Like, they'll bring in, like, new actresses or some other new, like, male figures every once in a while, but, like, a lot of the supporting cast overlaps. 
uh, a lot of Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee appearances. Um, they liked what they liked. Now, interestingly enough, um, Christopher Lee, I think, does a, a decent job at Dracula in this. But Christopher Lee was allegedly concerned that he was going to get typecasted. Going back to back, monster to monster. So he actually skips the next Dracula movie. Which is understandable because that's what happened to Karloff. And it's also what happened to Bela Lugosi. And it's really interesting because that was such a thing. And and I guess maybe up until very, very much recently. Because even Adam West talked about that. Of being, he was just stuck as Batman forever. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of guys. Um, George Reeves as Superman. Same thing. Yeah. He was stuck. And, you know, a lot of these guys, they have these great performances and they're like, great, now I'm stuck with this. And now I don't know if that's the case. Well, I think because there were some people that could do a certain character so well. Right. And once you saw them do that so well, let's just keep them doing that. Right. So it's worked, so why change it? In case they bomb in something else, <laughs> keep them as a monster or a superhero or as a cowboy right. or a mafioso or something. Right. Yeah. Don't, don't take them out of that. But now acting such a wide range to where you have to be good at a little bit of everything. Unless you're The Rock. Uh, then you can just be The Rock. I, but that's his choice. Yeah. That's not like people being like, hey man, you gotta just be The Rock. It's like, no, I got, it's in my contract that I'm The Rock. I don't, it could be the people's choice. <laughs> well, he is the yeah, people's, champ. The people's um, champ. But yeah, Horror of Dracula is interesting. Um, it's a little slow paced because again, it's still 58. Um, but I was listening to... Uh, Dead City Drive-In, and they were talking about this particular film. Plug. And, uh, please have me on your show. And, uh, <laughs> they talked about that this was really the first showing of, like, a sexual nature to vampirism. Because Bella Lugosi, in our humble, in the humble opinion of the show, fucks. However. You don't see him fuck. There's not overt sexual tones, necessarily, or sexual scenes in original Dracula. No, it's just in his face and his eyes and it's right, like and he's yeah. double jointed and all that stuff. But, he, uh, he could fuck, but you don't see it. Right, because it's still the 30s. Um, but horror of Dracula, there are like kind of almost seduction scenes. Yes. There are scenes where he's going to bite his victim and there is a, like, he's putting her down on a bed and he's like pulling the cape up, like, because it's still British. Yeah. Um, but there is a much more sexual element to it. Um, that being said, we get Jonathan Harker in the beginning, and instead of being like the mousy librarian, he already knows the deal, yep. and he's come here to kill Dracula, and fails. Which I was like, what a shocking... What a twist. ...change to start the whole movie. is like, no, 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 no. Vampires are a thing, he knows it's a thing, and he's here to fuck shit up. Which I think is good, like going back to Frankenstein, they had to tweak it to where it's not just a carbon copy... Of the Universal film or of the book. Right. You have to tell your own telling of the story in the confines of the structure without going too far, but also making it your own. Which is funny because, you know, one thing that you forget about is, you know, up until VHS and, and Betamax and things like that, the home watching experience wasn't really a thing. So that's why if you watch Bride of Frankenstein, they do like a sum up in the beginning of like, you remember Frankenstein, blah, 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 blah. And they like kind of sum it up a little bit before they get to the movie. Yeah. Because like Frankenstein wasn't playing on AMC the weekend before and you're like, <laughs> oh yeah, great. Like it could have been a few years since you've seen Frankenstein and like 
when were you going to see it again? Or there's a chance that you never were able to see right. it. So they have to catch you right. up. Right. So, bold of Hammer to go like, hey, let's still do it different. Even though they could have just copy-pasted. Yeah. Because, you know, it, again, it wasn't like everyone was like, oh yeah, I just watched Frankenstein last weekend. It was like, uh, you Unless it's like some kind of, you know, midnight drive-in, you might... You might have seen, like, bits and pieces somewhere, but that's the extent of it. So, um, Horror of Dracula is good. Now, That this one really does kind of set the pace for the hammer quick finish. Yes. The go-home the go home spot. Um, you know, Dracula's fucking around. He's biting people, whatever, whatever. Van Helsing finally kind of figures it out. And then we literally have a chase scene. We've got Dracula hauling ass back to his castle with his, like, new Dracula bride, trying to bury her in the coffin so she'll come back. He's midway through burying in the front yard. Van Helsing pulls up in the carriage. Dracula's fucked his shit, runs back in the castle. They have this back and forth. And then um, you've got the great using the metal candlesticks to make the cross to, like, push Dracula back. Into the sunlight. Yeah, and he burns his hand, and then Van Helsing's like, oh my god, sunlight. And then this awesome running jump off the table, grab the curtain, pull down, room fills with sunlight, fuck Dracula, he's dead. Which, and it takes a lot of the, not in a bad way, but there's a lot of things you really never think about Dracula doing. Mm -hmm. Like running. That's just something that never came to mind. It's just Dracula hauling ass. Because Dracula in this doesn't turn into a bat. Yeah. He's just a guy. So, you know, Bela Lugosi didn't run because he could turn to a bat. Yeah. Christopher Lee's got a whole ass with a goddamn cape behind him. Which, Fox. Yeah, again, whoosh. costuming, really outstanding. Really outstanding. And the idea that thinking of Dracula with a shovel digging, just, it's yeah. like, yes, he would have to do that. Right. But though you never think of that. Well, you never think of the like nuts and bolts element of like the coffin life, of like yeah, like oh yeah, no, he's got to have a whole thing and the thing and like there's a part earlier in the film where Dracula has gotten his coffin into basically the cellar of you know the the doctor in town without him knowing, and Van Helsing finds it and leaves a cross in there. That they never go back to. Well, they do for a second. Well, basically, he's like, well, I'm keeping him out of this now. So yeah. that's what leads into our chase scene, because Dracula can't just vibe in the coffin. He's like, oh, fuck, I gotta go back to the castle. But yeah, you don't expect, in all of the things in a classic vintage Dracula film, you don't think the phrase, and then the chase scene happens. Yeah. Like, just that's a, as a high speed of a chase you can have with a fucking horse-drawn carriage. Just Van Helsing chasing after him, along with uh, Alfred from the original Batman movies. Yes. Um, Which I can't wait until we get to the Phantom for that. So, uh, two years after Horror of Dracula, we get another literary horror story. We get The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll. Now, I didn't realize when we watched it that it is 1960. Now that I know that, that makes a lot more sense with that movie. Because the two faces of, of Dr. Jekyll is horny as shit. Yep. Yes, it is. So we were already... We had a little bit, I would say, uh, some pushback on this one. Because initially... The, the fake beard. Yeah, when you first start... So they go the inverse. Again, they're they're doing their own little twist on things. Um, doc, In this one, Dr. Jekyll looks like shit. 
Yes, he's and, more disheveled. And Mr. Hyde is a little more hot. Yeah. Which is done now. Like, now that's sort of a thing. But at the time, it was originally like, Dr. Jekyll's well put together. Mr. Hyde is a, is literally a monster. Yeah. Like, he's like a hulking brute. And in this, it's like, they slap... Because they use the same actor. So it's like, they slap on a very fake beard and bushy eyebrows onto Jekyll. And then they just peel the spirit gum off. And now he's Mr. Hyde. And it looks so bad. It's really rough. To the point where me and Zach are watching it and going, I, I hope this isn't a majority of the movie. It's just this guy yeah. and his fake beard. Uh, so, Which luckily it wasn't. No, thank God. And so the story itself is still pretty much the high points of Jekyll and Hyde. Like, he's experimenting. He you know comes up with this formula. Now he's Mr. Hyde. But they're really playing up that, like, Jekyll is sort of this incel. Like, he doesn't go out. He's married to this woman. He has lots of money. But they never go out on, like, social things. She's, like, a social butterfly. She's sort of upper class. He's just experimenting. He's just working on science shit, and that's it. Yeah, he's just... Just... Putting the work in. Just jumped headfirst into his work and will not stop. Yeah, and so we find out that Mrs. Jekyll is cheating on Dr. Jekyll... With the sleaziest sleaze in town, played by Christopher Lee and his bitchin' sideburns. Oh, man. And Christopher Lee said that this was his favorite role that he played in any Hammer film because he is just a sleaze in this whole thing start to finish. Zero redeemable qualities about him at all. Just Uh, just a total shitbag. So, Mr. Hyde, once he becomes a thing... Learns his, like, partying lifestyle. He learns to be Ric Flair from Christopher Lee. Yes. They have, like, a big, sexy party montage. The, um, it almost turns into a buddy cop film. It, for a point. minute, that's I kind of wanted it to do that. I was like, you know what? Fuck all this drama. Let's just have them go to Vegas, and we'll just see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's a very horny film. There's an extended snake dance scene with yeah. a lady in her underwear. Um there's like all kinds of hookers and stuff. It's very horny. There's an opium den. Yeah, yeah. There's an opium den at one point, and then the movie kind of takes a weird turn, where Mister Hyde figures out that Christopher Lee is banging Mrs. Jekyll, and it becomes a weird power cuck thing, where he's like, Ah, Christopher Lee, you've got gambling debts all over town. What if I pay off your gambling debts and you get Mrs. Hyde or uh, Mrs. Jekyll to bang me instead? And it's like a whole big weird hoopla. And I don't know. It 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 was interesting. It told an interesting story. It was a little melodramatic. A little bit. A little bit. A lot of Jekyll's speeches about like, oh, what has become of me? Like, it's a little melodramatic. But that is that that's supposed to be the beauty of Jekyll and Hyde. Right. Right. It's just, it gets lost in all of the chaos and horniness that is this film. Yeah, it just, it hits the brakes sometimes, and you're like, I know, but also, (laughs) come on. Um, And then it ends super quick. Which, and I loved the ending to this movie. Really? Yes. So, uh, Hyde basically fakes Jekyll's death. He, like, sets fire to the lab. He's, like, talking back and forth. He has, like, a dead body in there that they're not going to be able to identify because it's still, like, the 1800s. Well, and because it burned. Right. Well, also, but like even dental records weren't a thing at this yeah. point, blah, blah, blah. They would just go in and go, hmm, dead guy, and that'd be it. Um, so Mr. Hyde's like, cool beans. I got away with it. I've like killed Jekyll in my subconscious. I'm in full control now. Cool beans. 
So they're like at like his estate reading almost. Yes. And it's like, yeah, Mr. Hyde gets everything, I guess. And Mr. Hyde's like trying not to like laugh or shit his pants like in front of everybody. Because he got away with it. Because he got away with it. And then he's just about to leave. And then Jekyll like comes back and does the big final transformation. And it like sucks his essence away to do it. Because he's like... Every time the transformation comes back, Jekyll's a little grayer, a little older looking. And so this last one is like, what does him in? Yeah. And so he dies as Jekyll, as a good man kind of thing. Which I thought was interesting. Well, and it was a good way to wrap everything up very quickly in Hammer fashion. But also it's just, it. it's a very sad movie. It had a poetry to it. And that is the beauty of, and I know we're talking about Hammer, but that is the beauty of the Universal Monster is that they are very tragic and they're very relatable. I don't know. I mean, it's 1960. I don't know what the fuck I would have done if if Mr. Hyde just like got away with it and that was it. Like, yeah. He's just like, yep, and I got his money too. And then just end credits. I don't know how I would feel about that. It's like, I know that, that that's not okay. Yeah. So the, the, the final transformation's uh, pretty good. Um, same year, uh, we go back to Brides of Dracula, this not starring Christopher Lee because, as I said, he got worried about typecasting. However, does have Peter Cushing yes, it does. as Van Helsing again. And this is the first film that we watched. This was the first one we watched. And it, as soon as you saw him in his wardrobe, you fell in love. Absolutely. Like man, I wish I could shape my face and not look like a foot. <laughs> but it was—I had never seen a Hammer horror film before. True, and it was the the uh, the atmosphere. The color is so crazy. Yes, like it's like super super Technicolor because it's the sixties. Well, and just the set designs, yeah, are amazing. so beautiful, incredible. Yeah, and the and the costuming's great. Um, the guy who they had playing Dracula was interesting. He was, uh, they were, he's not actually Dracula. Uh, the name of the movie is very misleading. Um, he's like a baron. And the it, the thing that was interesting was like, oh, his family's very rich. And like they don't suffer any consequences for anything because they're so rich. And he's like partying as a young man. And he gets into shit he shouldn't be getting into. And next thing you know, oops, a daisy, he's a vampire. He's a vampire. He's locked in this basement, right? Because his mother knows, and she won't she do anything about it. But she's but, got him locked up. Yes, and then this young woman comes. This like French woman, yeah, comes to town. She's supposed to be a teacher at like a local school, and she stays with the the Baron's mother, right? And then the Baron kind of fools her into right. letting him out, and then shenanigans ensue, right? But then you get Van Helsing come to town, come to fuck shit up. And uh, that actually had one of the coolest holy shit moments. Because if you remember towards the end, this the Baron bites Van Helsing. Yes, yes. And then he and he, so so he So oh. he bites Van Helsing and then fucks off. He's like, see ya. And so Van Helsing's like, oh no. And he happened to have a little thing, a little canteen of holy water that Naturally. a priest gave him earlier in the film. He dumps that on the fucking bite wound and then takes like a metal poker and cauterizes the wound and that combination cures him of vampirism. Somehow. And so when the Baron comes back, 
he's like, hey, guess what, bitch? I'm still here. And fucking gets him. And that was awesome. We lost our minds at that. Because you never hear about something like that. That doesn't... Well, very bold that, you know, we're jumping into basically, you know, the second Dracula film of the series, and they're already coming up with wild shit of like, well, uh, let's undo the bite. Like, he's not a vampire yet. They're like, like, how much much of this lore can we get away with? Yeah. It felt very Batman 66. A little bit. A little bit. How can Batman get out of the trap? Yeah, exactly. The equivalent of uh, vampire repellent spray. He had, uh, he did the old one too. Then the next film in the series, two years after Brides of Dracula, Hammer attempts another universal classic, Hammer's take on Phantom of the Opera. And I have to say this right now. I've never been a big Phantom of the Opera person. Mm Mm-hmm. I've always liked the look and the aesthetics. Yeah, Lon Chaney's the man. Yes. But, but the movies never really did anything for me so much. Well, the first one's a silent film. Yeah. You know, there's been plenty of remakes, and they're just like, okay, it's yeah. a little melodramatic, it's a little romantic, like, okay. This one right here, to me, is the absolute best Phantom of the Opera now, film. <laughs> now, why is that, in your opinion? Because... The monster, the the Phantom, he's very relatable. He is like the perfect essence of the universal tragic monster. Very true. This is about as tragic as we get for like a monster in this in this series. But he's still a bastard. Oh yeah. He's still but he's a bastard in such a way that he has passion for his art and fuck you if you aren't gonna do it the right way. That's true. He does slap Christine Double tap. The double tap. Backhand, and before she knows what hit her, he's coming through with the follow-through. Yeah, he hits her with the sequel. Um, that Alfred? was very shocking. Yes, Alfred from uh, the Tim Burton Batman films. The sle- sleaze on level with Christopher Lee in The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll. I think he might be worse. He, well, because he's like a genuine creep. Christopher Lee's just sort of like fun sleaze. Uh, Alfred is like genuinely... Uh, Weinsteiny kind yes. of not okay amount of sleaze. It's you want to go, you want to be in my opera. You right. gotta, hey, yeah. Which then we find out that he's part of the Phantom's backstory because he's the one who basically bought the Phantom's opera before he was the Phantom for like next to nothing, and then just put his name on it. Yes, and so not only is like oh he's a big sleaze, but also oh no he is genuinely a piece of shit. And is the whole catalyst for all of this. Yeah. Um, and once again, ends in super quick fashion. This might be the fastest one. This might be the fastest ending. It, it feels like if they had the Rocky montage, that's the ending of the film. Yes. Uh, so, you know, everyone kind of... The, the Phantom's not overtly villainous in this. He's, he's much more tragic. And so, you know, we all have a big talk at the end. We all feel, okay, you know, everyone's okay. Uh, and they're going to do the Phantom show the right way, and Christine's going to do it, and holy shit, it's great, and blah, 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 and everyone loves it, and the show's going wonderfully. You see the Phantom in the box, and he's watching on, and there's the tear in his eye as he's watching his play come to life, and then his dummy assistant, who was actually doing the killings in the movie, uh, ends up whoops-a-daisy, knocks the chandelier down, and it's going to kill Christine. And so the Phantom comes swings in to try to save the day, pushes Christine out of the way, 
gets crushed by the chandelier and dies immediately, and we go to credits. And not four seconds after it hit him, credits are rolling. I couldn't believe it. it so abrupt. Yeah, it's like, okay, we're at, if this movie has to be an hour and 30 minutes, we're at an hour and 29, 40. We have we're to wrap it up it right now. Yeah. Uh, if this, You had said it at the moment we were watching it. If this movie had been made now, we would have got another 45 minutes of like, where are they now? Yes. Like we'd see, you know, where Christine and her boyfriend are and how the opera house is and the rat guy is and the little minions in jail and da 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 da. And this was just like, he's dead. So much to you as like your end all be all phantom telling. Because it was just, it was so tragic in the most realistic way. Right. Yeah, there was no romantic elements. Like, no. Christine did not, was not attracted to the Phantom. The Phantom is like a, a teacher, basically. Most teachers are. That's true. Especially in the arts. Especially good ones. Um, <laughs> well. uh, the the mask is interesting for the Phantom. I liked the Phantom. I, I don't have a bad thing with the movie, except for there wasn't enough movie. True, but yeah, it, the the mask looks very homemade. Yes, which is like a lot more fitting to huh. him living in the sewer and blah yeah. blah blah. Um, overall, yeah, I thought the the performances are really good. Um, the Phantom's great. Like it's 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 a very interesting take on it, with, especially when you compare it to like how many remakes there's been and retellings of it. <laughs> uh, two years after that, we get to the Gorgon, which was another attempt to create a, a horror film out of like literature and mythology. Um, but the Gorgon is basically like a Medusa. Now you, I know had a problem with this one. This one doesn't super, super stand out for me. Uh, however, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee are both in this one. Yes. Uh, both as like doctors and scientists. And I think my issue with the Gorgon isn't, that the because the movie isn't bad, it's, it's okay. It's not a it's bad okay. movie, but because Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, well defined. Mm -hmm. Dracula, Frankenstein, the Phantom—they're all well defined characters. Yes, the Gorgon. It feels like they're making up the mythology <laughs> as, as the movie's going as along. The movie's going on. Yeah, it kind of has like a werewolf vibe to it of like. Oh, when the full moon, then this woman becomes a Gorgon because of something and it's passed down from generate. I don't know. I don't yeah, know why I she don't remember the plot either. Yeah, but she's a Gorgon sometimes. And now I will say the turning to stone effects were very surprisingly good. good. Now, I say effects, it was before and after. Yeah. It's we, you know, tight cut on somebody going, Oh no, I'm looking at the Gorgon. And then we see the reveal like the next day and they literally like had a, you know, plaster yeah, like, or porcelain statue made of the actor's face. Like that I was impressed with, you know? Well, and something that they don't do because whenever this happens in literature or in film, it's instant. Right. You know, it's like right that second, bam. Stone. Oh yeah. 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 There's a part where, uh, one of the characters in the beginning gets, see like it's they don't get the full juice of it they see like it in reflection in, in the water yeah and 
So they're slowly turning to stone, so slowly that they can write a three-page letter to their son explaining the situation, which I thought was very silly. It like, was. Like, I get that we needed it for the plot point, but it felt very silly to be like, yes, my father wrote me this very long and wordy letter while he was turning into a statue. But I also feel like it would be more scary or more... It would be a worse fate to slowly turn to stone. Well, he even tells, like, the, the house assistant, he's like, the butler, basically, he's yeah. like, it's already too late for me. Like, just go upstairs. And it was like, holy shit. Yeah. Um, the ending, though, super abrupt. Now, I feel like this was a situation similar to Curse of Frankenstein. I feel like once they had the Gorgon makeup done, and this lady has a rubber wig with little robot snakes that go, eh, 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 and they like jiggle yeah. in her hair. Yep. I feel like once they saw that, they were like, "Hey, guy, this is not this is not going to translate well." <laughs> so like, she doesn't really make many appearances until the very, very end. Yes. Um, and so Peter Cushing is proven right. He's like, "Oh, this is my assistant, and I bet she's the Gorgon." He's proven right, but he gets turned to stone. The guy who was going to run away with the girl, who secretly is a Gorgon, he gets turned to stone. The only person left is Mr. I don't even have a fucking horse in this race, Christopher Lee, who walks up, saunters behind her with a big ass sword, cuts her head off in one swing, roll credits. Yep. Like, not, hey, Gorgons exist, or hey, I got some splaining to do, or nope. this whole town has known because there's been like 10 murders question, you know, quote unquote in the last like 10 years that have not been explained or something like that. It's like this whole town kind of sort of knew that a Gorgon's a thing. Fuck that shit. Christopher Lee saving the day. Yep. Gotta bounce. Well, and he's only kind of saving the day because every other character died. That's true. It's sort of out of vengeance. Like yeah. He's like, Hey, by the way, fuck you. It's like, I guess everyone else is dead. I'll take care of this. Um, so yeah, I and would say he took care of it. He did take care of it. So I would say of all the ones, uh, that we've seen, I think the Gorgon's probably in the bottom of the list. Just because, like you said, it's just unclear. It's not yeah. really sure where it's going, and it's building the plane as it's already flying. <laughs> um, after that, we jump ahead to 1968. Now, we did miss a uh, Christopher Lee Dracula, because I cannot find it. Um, I think it's it's not the Satanic Rites of Dracula. No, because we can find it's that. something else of Dracula. I cannot find it. I've never seen it. I don't know where to get my hands on it. So we had to go to the next one in line. Dracula has risen from the grave from 68. Now, how did you feel about this one? Because I remember you weren't super engaged with it. But I think it's okay. I enjoyed this one more than the Gorgon. Well, yeah. But I think on the same level as the horror of Dracula. Okay. So it's not really breaking out yet. Because, and my initial issue with Christopher Lee was because he looked too young as Dracula. Right, in, in 58, it, yeah. Yes. But when we get to this this film... It's literally been 10 years. He's got some age on him. Right. He's got some gray. He looks more distinguished. He looks more like Dracula. Yes. And that sells me more on the film. I agree. Because baby face, like, Christopher Lee still got some baby fat in his cheeks. <laughs> And it's like, yeah, true. You should look a little more gaunt if you're if you're undead. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I do like about this one, um, this 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 one has two interesting elements that they don't explore as much as they should. 
Number one is the fir- well. Let's start with this. My favorite part is how we do a reverse backflip, jump the shark, in order to get Dracula back in the fucking movie. Oh, well, I was so, I was hoping you didn't so, skip over. So me. somehow in the Dracula movie we can't see, he ends up. He's alive again, first of all, question mark. Because last time we saw him... He was he burned was, to death. Yeah, he was turned to dust by the sun. Question mark, question mark. Somehow he came back. Somehow he's defeated again. And he's frozen in ice at the top of this mountain. The town near it that was plagued by Dracula still lives in fear of Dracula, even though Dracula's been killed twice now. Kind of a chump. A little bit. Uh, doesn't have a great record. Um, so... You know, basically a bishop comes to town. He, like, gives the local priest shit because he's like, how come this town doesn't go to church anymore? Like, what's the deal? And they're like, well, everyone's still freaked out about Dracula. Dracula. And so the bishop's like, all right, fuck this shit. You and I are going to Dracula's castle. We're going to take a big shit on the doorstep and prove to everybody that Dracula's gone. And they all need to go back to church and start tithing and giving money to the church and blah, blah, blah. Which, and I do like that they put... A big-ass cross on the door. Yeah, just as a major fuck you to Dracula, they bring this giant golden cross. This comedically-sized <laughs> cross. And stick it on the front door. Uh, and then the local priest, who's a big sad sack, oh. oops a daisy and falls down the mountain, bonks his little noodle on a rock, there's a little trickle of blood that comes out of his noodle, goes down the mountain... Over the ice and lands right on Dracula's mouth. Yep. And that's all that's needed. He's like, num, 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 I'm back and I'm fine. So the two interesting elements that this movie has that it doesn't super explore. Number one, Dracula's Renfield in this case, or his minion, is the sad sack priest. Which I feel like that's really interesting on paper. Of like, it's somebody who believes in God, who teaches about God, being used for evil. And that in itself could be its own film. But it isn't done well here. No. It's just he's just a sad sort of, you know, henchman and that's it. Yeah, they don't play into like the, the duality. Right. It's just ah, he's the he, henchman. He's and I think the problem with it is when we first see him, when the bishop first comes to town, he's already a sad sack. Yeah. Which I guess is sort of our like, well, this is how he could be corrupted. But it's one of those things where it's like, if he was a little more on his game and becomes corrupted by Dracula, and now he's sort of a sad sack. That's more uh, engaging. Anyway, and then the number two thing is, our hero is not the bishop. Our hero is like this young, kind of brainy college guy who's a big himbo dingus who doesn't believe in God. Yeah. He's, he's an atheist. And he says so. Right. It's explored in the film. A little bit. It's a little bit explored. And it doesn't really come to fruition until towards the end where he, you know, his girlfriend is is being attacked by Dracula and blah, 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 and he's going to convert. Because, wonderfully enough, Dracula comes back to life. He sees the big golden cross on the door. He's yep. like, hey, this is bullshit. What is this? The minion's like, hey, the bishop put it on the door. I don't tell you. And Dracula's plan is great. Fuck this guy and his whole family. Let's go. Yeah. So he ends up killing the bishop. And then as super revenge, the bishop's niece, he's like, guess what? You're my new bride. So at one point, it's sort of a fake out, falsy, yep. a fake, a fake ending. Uh, himbo hero guy finds Dracula and stakes the shit out of him before the end of the movie. S- drives the stake right at him. 
Dracula bleeding, gasping for air. And the priest goes, hey, man, you got to pray over that or shit ain't going to stick. And our hero goes, ah, I can't do that. And just doesn't. And so then Dracula goes, all right, fuck this shit. And, and yanks it out. Just yanks it out. No sells it. Nope, I'm good. Which is, I, that's a wrinkle that I've never heard of before. Never, ever, ever. Once again, Hammer playing with the mythology. Well, because we have the myth, we have the lore of, oh, crucifix. Yeah. That, that'll repel. But we don't go beyond that. We don't, you know, it'll burn them. Ah, but we don't play into this, like, how does God play a role in vampirism? Like, yeah. how is this a thing? Well, and I, I always thought you stake them. Bang, right. Done. I did, you have to stake and then say, is there a specific a prayer? prayer, yeah. Um, you know. Uh, so, so, it fails the first time. Dracula brings his new blonde girlfriend. They go back to the castle. And his first thing is, honey, get that shit off the door. And so she goes over and she hoists it off and throws it. This comedically it, sized cross. And it lands perfectly in the dirt, sticked right in, pointy end right up. Oh, gee. So we have uh, kind of a final battle at the castle. Himbo comes in to try to save the day again. He knocks Dracula down. Dracula falls, <laughs> lands, whoops, a daisy right on the fucking cross. And as Christopher Lee's selling yes. the big, I've got a cross in my chest. Yes. They're having a casual conversation about the prayer. Right. And then the sad sack priest gets his redemption because he says a prayer. And that's what kills Dracula, who turns into dust and a skeleton again. Again. Which, again, the thing of like not exploring it is you would think that this would really drive home that like the boyfriend is now like, Oh, I got to become like a, the, the Pope. Like I know that God exists. Like yeah. that's a thing now, but it's just sort of played like a, uh, whatever. Like he kind of like looks at the priest and is like, Hey, God bless. And you're like, Hey, like that's sort of the end of it. Well, because in typical hammer fashion, that is the end of the movie. Yeah, as soon as Dracula eats shit and they say a prayer and those goddamn credits, there is no follow up on yeah. how anyone's doing. Just that is the end. Yeah. Which I'm I'm starting to become fond of. It's it's there is a certain level of absurdity to it. There's that it, you're like, how do we land this plane immediately? And it's such a leave them on a high note. That's true. That's, that's true. That, send the send the crowd home happy. Like let's not bog it down, right? It's the Hogan leg drop. <laughs> Dracula falling on a cross that stabs through his chest is the Hogan leg drop of film. Cut it. Yeah, we're so done. Go home. We hit the finish. No falsies. Yeah, go <laughs> home. Gone. No Papa Shango missing his cue and Sid Vicious kicking out. None nope. of that. Oh. So yeah, Hammer Horror. We're still going to keep chronicling. There's a shitload more. Oh yeah. Uh, and they only get weirder. I'm very excited for Dracula 80, 80. 1972. Yep, that's the one. Uh, very excited for that. Also, I've heard that like the Seven Golden Vampires is really crazy because it's a kung fu vampire movie, but Peter Cushing is still Van Helsing in it. Oh, does he know kung fu? I think he does. Oh, this is amazing. So I've heard good things. Um, so uh, there's plenty <laughs> oh. more to watch. So we'll continue this uh, this journey. But the other thing I wanted to mention. So first of all, any closing thoughts about Hammer in general? Uh, I would recommend anybody that's a fan of the Universal Monster movies 
or just the characters in general, go and find these films. They're very good. And available for streaming on a lot of different platforms. Yeah. They're usually pretty cheap. Um, it's very interesting to see Christopher Lee play Dracula, um, especially... In the later one, he had a lot more speaking roles. Um, in the first one, I think he only has like 12 lines, I think, in the whole movie. It's they keep him very quiet, very mysterious. In 68, he's a little more chatty. Um, he's got some some better lines. Um, but yeah, like you said at the beginning, the, the, the costuming, the sets, um, even some of the music's really good. Yeah. It's very dramatic, but it's of that era, and it does a really good job of just, like, being bright and vibrant and kind of building this world. Well, and it's bright when it needs to be, and it's dark when it needs to be. Yes. It shows the emotion you're supposed to be feeling in the scenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's the best cabbie. Oh, in... I forgot about the most British man that's ever lived. Yeah. Just giant mustache. Yeah. Just in so multiple cockney. films, he's like, oh, boy, me is a fucking phantom. Like, he's so British. And the most British man that's ever lived. It's amazing. And he, and he, yeah, and that's the other thing, too, is especially when you're watching a lot of these back to back, you're playing that Where's Waldo game of like, oh, hey, it's the drunk doctor from, you know, the Dates of Blood of Dracula, like, yeah. whatever. Um, but no, it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, obviously, I'd seen some of these films um, back in college. I had uh, I had watched a few of these, but I didn't. I had never seen Jekyll. Um, I didn't remember the Gorgon. Um, I hadn't ever watched any of the Frankenstein's. So um, it's been very interesting to, to watch some of these and revisit them. I'm actually a lot softer on Dracula Rises from the Grave than I was when I first saw it. Really? I did a review of it probably 15 years ago. And I kind of took a big shit on it of just like it was kind of dumb and the lead and the main hero's dumb. And now I'm watching it again. I'm like, this has some interesting ideas. Yeah. This has some really interesting ideas. It doesn't super capitalize on it. Like you said, if this was done now, the whole movie would be about the priest who gets who succumbs to Dracula. Um, you know, there's a there's that interesting scene when the girl uh, Van Helsing is kind of figured out. Well, not Van Helsing, but like the boy and whoever is kind of figured out something's up. And, uh, you know, they get garlic all over the room and she's wearing a crucifix or whatever. And they like bring the priest in like, Oh, watch over her, say a prayer or two. And he's like, yeah, sure. No problem. And then like, as soon as the guy leaves, the priest starts fucking everything up and he like busts open the window and like tears all the shit down, but he can't, he can't will himself to take the crucifix off of her, but it's still enough for Dracula to show back up. And he's like, Hey, what's up? So yeah. Interesting ideas. Interesting and, ideas. And if he wasn't such a sad sack the whole film... It would have had a little uh, more impact. That would have been a, a big scene. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the other thing that I want to close on here uh, and make this back into a wrestling podcast is we've done a little bit of deep diving into some vintage wrestling to figure out what they were doing right, what everyone else is doing wrong in this day and age. Uh, we watched some... Stone Cold matches. Yes. We watched a little bit of old ECW from 95. 94. 94. Apologies. And uh, so so talk to me a little bit about revisiting Steve Austin and why everyone needs to stop being Stone Cold so that you can be Stone so Cold. So I can be Stone Cold. Because, oh man, I, you know my fondness for Steve Austin. Yes. It's it's bad. Hot. It's bad. Hot. Yeah. yeah, I could be... I, love Stone Cold and Stunning Steve Steve Austin and ECW cut the ringmaster yeah uh, he's just so good he knew when to be comedic and when to be serious like we were watching Wrestlemania 17 or X7 right 
don't want to cause too much controversy. Yeah, that's not a hot take in here. Come on. But he's going back and forth, and he's lighting up the rock. And Earl Hebner's like, hey, you got to get your hands off of him. Open hand, open hand. And he just looks at Earl Hebner and gives him the bird and goes back to punching the rock. Yeah, there's a great comedic element to how much of a cartoon he was in ring. Yeah. Well, and another part, he's got the rock and the sharpshooter. And the rocks and the ropes, but it's no disqualification. Ah, Earl Hebner, giving him the count, you gotta let him go, you gotta let him go. One hand in the sharpshooter, other hand, giving him the bird. <laughs> Comedic genius. And getting to see Rock really, like, super selling the stunner in real time, and, and you know, this was, uh, we watched when Stone Cold joined forces with Vinnie Mac. Yep. And we watched, uh, I want to say it was, no, because 13 was with Brett, 14 was with Sean, so it would be WrestleMania 15 when he wrestled The Rock. Yes. The first time. The first time, yes. When he forgot his vest. Right. He came with a t-shirt on. Yeah. (laughs) Um, We've all been there. Um, Yeah, just watching like him at, you know, his peaks, you know, basically at WrestleMania uh, on such a big stage, and when seeing, we talked about the signs, seeing the crowds, the crowds with signs, the flashbulbs, yeah, and, uh, and and just completely fighting all over the arena when there's nothing. Like you've got actual arena security that are like, what the fuck? Like they don't know what the hell's going on. Like they're just like, please, nobody stab somebody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Somebody's got a box of Wheaties with Stone Cold on it. Like it's just, it was, it was a wonderful mess. And then what about watching? 94 ECW. We haven't we haven't picked up yet. It's not 97. It's not like we're not extreme. There's no barbed wire on the belt. It's a little extreme, but it's not Sci-Fi Channel extreme. Well, oh, wait a minute now. Now that's the a good hot stuff. Hey, 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 now we'll get the podcast canceled immediately. Big show. Uh, <laughs> the, the true ECW the, champ. The, the zombie. The zombie. The true ECW favorite. But yes, like we we've gotten hardcore, but we're not at the Taipei Deathmatch yet. True. We're not. True. You know, Pitbull number two is still in the neck harness. Right, yeah. Shane Douglas is the television champion. Yes. We watched, uh, what was it called? Like, The Doctor is In or something like that? I think so. Uh, Francine had just turned on the Pitbulls and was, like, aligning herself with Shane Douglas, which is so bonkers to me because I just, in my dumb brain, I'm just like, no, like, God created the Earth and then... Shane Douglas and Francine were a thing. Yeah, like that's naturally. just I just imagine they just always were, but to be like, oh, she turned her back on the pit bulls, and I'm like, what the? F-? Of like, course she's with Shane Douglas. He's the franchise. Of like, course. Yeah, it was just very silly to be like, oh right, there was a time where she wasn't. Well, and then there was two Cole Scorpio and, and, and Lionheart, Lionheart Chris Jericho with the airbrushed leather vest. Yeah, that was a hell of a match. Oh yeah, that was good. The, that razor thin shooting star press. Oh dear God. Oh. Part, so scary. part shooting star press, part watch my life flash before my eyes. I almost break my own neck. Oh god, it, it wasn't Brock scary, but it was. It was close. It was rough. Uh, Mikey Whipwreck versus. Oh my god, I can't remember the guy's name. Some jabron in in lime green tights. He did have the Mike Orlando, neatly light bright green gear. <laughs> um, but yeah, seeing Devin Storm. There it you was go. Devin Storm. There you go. Uh, and then there was a tag match that you have not finished watching, which was uh, Taz and some guy versus Tommy Dreamer 
And goddamn Dr. Death Steve Williams. The whole reason we put it on. so bonkers. Because I wanted to see Dr. Death versus Taz. The buildup is fucking enormous. Yeah. The, the, to see, it's very surreal to watch a full-to-the-brim ECW arena screaming... Dr. Death! Dr. Death! As soon as he takes the robe off and he's just doing like the Brock Lesnar sort of like jumps in the corner and everyone's just like, ah! And Taz is just standing there like arms crossed and Bill Alfonso is going to have a goddamn heart attack. He's like ripping on the ropes, blowing his whistle. Like it, you thought the entire world was going to explode. It was like when the mega power shook hands. It was like the earth's going to explode and never recover. Man. Um, that's another one. I'm gonna need all these in, all these indie guys to stop being Taz, so that you can. So be Taz. I could be Taz. Right. All right, cut it out. Although, again, in my dream booking scenario, we book you in a no mercy match. Meaning, to anyone not aware of my own dumb brain, a no a no mercy match means that however many fighters are involved, you are imbibed with the spirit of a previous wrestler. So I got tweeted about this. I, I feel bad because I can't remember who it was. I um, want to say it was Chad, but I can't remember. Probably. That me, myself and Noah Vale need to be Triple H China versus Bass and Lexi Gomez, the Legion of Doom. Okay, okay. In my dream booking, no mercy match, you, Stone Cold, hot, against Nova as Taz. Because you buzz that hair a little shorter and you put him in the black singlet and the little shitty boots, he could be Florida Taz. Nova, are you hearing this? (laughs) Do you want to draw money? Do you want to make money here, pal? Be Taz. Well, and again, Taz drew money. when When you watch the tag match, Seeing Taz come out with the amount of like pomp and circumstance, because you've got Bill who's losing his shit as the hype man for Team Taz, but they're also representing Taz's dojo. Yes. So there's a couple of green boys that are in like the Taz track jackets. Yeah, Taz track jackets. They've got a like a flag that's got the Taz T on it that they like bring out and roll up. Like oh. it's a whole song and dance to end with Taz in the corner, arms crossed. Not moving a muscle. And then Tommy Dreamer and Dr. Death come in, the world explodes, and Taz doesn't fucking move. And yeah. it's just like, there is some genuine intensity. We're telling stories. And of course, the whole thing is, you're just waiting for Taz and Dr. Death to, to lock up, and they keep getting cut off and cut off and cut off, and then we finally get it. This match happened before I was born. Right. I'm still waiting to see Taz and Dr. Death. <laughs> yeah, no, it was. It, it's, it's very interesting to you know see this as like we're building things we're building blocks like rvd and sabu have a match and you know you see shane douglas first being a real bastard and and you know the gangsters win the tag titles like it's a lot of building blocks of things that are going to become staples of ecw the dudleys have like a weird breakdown feud and um uh former guest of the indie cast joel gartner is like rail thin in a tuxedo and ends up getting power bombed from the top rope by Pitbull Two after the match. Like oh. it's disgusting. Because um, he did Shane Douglas's ring introduction like a real piece of shit. Yes, he did. Uh, in fact, in fact, one of the best parts is when Shane. Spoiler alert for a match like a million years old. Shane wins. He retains the title, and when Joel does the announcement, 
he gets the ring and he starts with, as if there was any doubt. Like, that's ah, his, like, yes. his starting point. I was like, what a piece of shit. What a piece of trash. And he stands on, he has one foot on Pitbull 2 <laughs> as he's doing the announcement. <laughs> and then Pitbull 2 grabs his leg and Shane and Francine hit the bricks and he just fucks him up. So, storytelling. Storytelling. Um, but yeah, so we're going to keep doing this odyssey of old wrestling and old Hammer films. And, uh, and we'll keep everybody posted. But uh, uh, Starling, you might as well uh, plug your social media and all that good stuff and where people can buy your merch and get your shit in. Well, if you haven't bought my merch at fullygimmick.com, there you go. Well, I'm going to be a little upset. We're going to have some hate here. We're going to have some hate ski uh, on Instagram at DanielStarling98. On Twitter at DanStarling98, because there's already a Daniel Starling on Twitter, so we've got heat. Uh, <laughs> follow me on all of my things. I'm not very active on social media, but when I do post, it is fairly engaging. Okay, good, good. And I noticed you brought up the Brawl Super Pod and the Wrestling Nerds Radio Network All Florida title. yes. I don't know if you could feel me staring daggers at you. You did get me with the Dracula stare there. It's been an hour. I'm still hot about it. Well, be that as it may, uh, we will keep everyone informed uh, as soon as we see the first official title defense. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll obviously go ape shit over that. And uh, hopefully you and Noah cross paths at some point and we get to have uh, a real fight for, for Florida supremacy. Uh, this state's about to become radioactive, thanks to the government. So, oh. uh, so we might as well have a hell of a fight before then, before the streets are all start glowing. But <laughs> nevertheless, thank you all so much for listening to another episode of the IndieCast. Uh, for everybody here, on behalf of Luna and Chad, I am Zach Romero. I'm Daniel Starling. And until next time, we always say... Deuces. Hercules Mulligan! A jump scare is the Canadian destroyer of horror films. Pardon me. Might I suck my own dick for a second? I'm ready to greet the day, you <laughs> fucker. Every single one of you guys has made a horrible decision. <laughs> it's that dirty-ass Meryl Street. We are. We're touching wieners. Not touching wieners good. professionally. Ric Flair said fuck a six-pack, and he never lost an ounce of pussy. What I am is a big, queer, stone-cold Steve Austin. Love dick. Birds don't give a fuck about your life.